Zeus issues a new strict decree that the gods are no longer to help the Achaeans or the Trojans in order that Zeus may bring this violent business to an end. The gods are in stunned silence when Athena, the goddess of wisdom, acknowledges Father Zeus's command, but also provides the caveat that she'll, quote, simply offer the Argives tactics, end quote. As the fighting begins anew, Zeus holds out his sacred golden scales of fate, and they show a day of doom for the Achaeans, the Greeks. Zeus makes known his judgment by letting loose his lightning and thunder against the Argives. And as they retreat, Nestor is left behind because Prince Paris shoots his horse. The worst. The worst. <laughs> Just totally on brand. Uh. Very on brand for Paris. Diomedes charges the front lines by himself and saves Nestor using the horses he took from Aeneas. But then he also decides to charge Troy alone in an attempt to kill Hector. Well, he actually convinces Nestor to try and help him do it, but it's just right. them two against the entire Trojan army. Diomedes turns around, however, due to the advice of Nestor and the lightning and thunder from Zeus. Hector, bolstered by Zeus's favor, leads Troy in an onslaught against the Argives. The goddess Hera, who is raging in Olympus, first tempts Poseidon to intervene against Zeus's decree, but Poseidon wisely declines to fight Zeus. Hera inspires Agamemnon, the Achaean high chieftain, inspires his men and cries out to Zeus for mercy. Zeus, moved by the weeping of Agamemnon, sends an eagle as an omen that the Argives may turn and fight. Zeus, however, favors the Trojans, and Hector leads an assault with eyes blazing like the war god Ares. Having failed to tempt Poseidon, Hera tempts Athena to interview, or excuse me, intervene against Zeus's decree, and Athena acquiesces and prepares for war. Zeus sends Iris, the messenger goddess, to Hera and Athena, and the two goddesses, not wanting to war with Zeus, call off their return to the battlefield. On Olympus, Zeus partially reveals his plan to Hera and Athena, the so-called Doom of Zeus, that Patroclus, the friend of Achilles, will die. Hector pushes the advance against the Greeks until nightfall, and the Trojans, the Achaeans, and the gods all wait for dawn to mount her golden throne. Welcome back to Ascend, the Great Books podcast. I'm here with the man in black, Deacon Harrison Garlic. I'm Adam Minahan. We're going to be going over book eight of the Iliad. If you're just now tuning in, go back, check it out the first episode. We talk about who is Homer, why we're doing this. Uh, we have a few other uh, little tidbits within that first e uh, episode for you guys to uh, kind of chew on as we go through the book of the Iliad, uh, and then we're going to go through the Odyssey. The idea is to go through Homer, Homer's works in the next 12 months. Yeah, a year with Homer. A year with a Homer. A year with Homer. Yep, so we're uh, book eight. This is how it works sequentially, as we talked about last week, that the depths <laughs> of knowledge that I provide to this podcast is that uh, seven is before eight, 
and eight is before <laughs> nine. And these are the orders that this is the order that we have decided to go. Good. I'll take it from here. Thank you, Adam, You're for welcome. that setup. I really appreciate it. So, <coughs> and I'm still plagued by allergies. So, we kind of one of the things we've been doing for the last couple of books is tracking like what are just some major themes, like particularly. Sure. For first-time readers, like, what, what should I be looking for? So, you know, last one we looked for uh, a theme of, like, burying the dead. This mm-hmm. is something we really need to understand. It's going to be used as a heavy plot device by Homer later on. Uh, before that, we talked about a theme of the family with Hector going back and seeing his family in Troy and kind of the intergenerational parsing out with Bellerophon and his people. Um, in this one, like, do we have a theme or a movement or what kind of gives us context in book eight? I would say very much... Uh, what I see here, what I talk about in the guide is... Which you can find on thegreatbooksofpodcast.com. Very good. Is, I think the movement of book eight is largely structured by Zeus's promise, the Thetis, right? Achilles' mm. mother, the sea nymph. So if you remember, we've kind of been waiting, right? Even right. when even when Zeus, uh, if memory serves, even when Zeus sent down Athena to uh, allow her to break the truce, mm-hmm. where if you remember that, mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. told her it was twofold. One, that the Trojans would break the truce, but then the Trojans need to have victory over the Argives. We haven't quite seen that. Like, we've had some back and forth, etc. I think The momentums have shifted back and forth a little bit. Right. We had, like, a duel between Hector and Ajax that paused things. Uh, Adam found it very unsatisfactory, mm-hmm. as do, I think, many first-time readers, right? Right. Um, you're expecting some kind of great outcome from these two giants coming together. They would have started at noon. <coughs> it would have been a lot better. It's nightfall, Adam. Yeah. So I think now then what's happening is we we really get um, the Trojan offensive, right? Fagel's titles this, the tide of the battle turns. I think the promise, the Thetis, if you remember, so just if we all can recall, right? She's the mother of Achilles. She goes and hugs the knees of Zeus saying, hey, you need to have my, uh, you know, you need to basically make it where... Agamemnon understands that he needs Achilles to win the war. So basically you have to bless the Trojans and they'll push up against the ships. They'll start slaughtering the Argives up against their ships. Agamemnon will then have to say he's sorry to Achilles. Mm-hmm. And then Achilles will rejoin the battle and have all this glory and et cetera, because then he'll turn the tide of the war. So this is like the, the key contextual promise that we've been tracking as it moves through the text. One of the things I would like to know, you know, particularly, you know, this is your first time working uh, through the work is how do you, how do you see this promise? I guess maybe to parse it out with like hypothetical, if you took all the divine intervention away. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the gods, you know, Apollo's a very short book. Yes. So let's just say just our hypothetical is the gods are not intervening, right? Mm -hmm. They're say they actually obey the strict decree of Zeus. Mm -hmm. They're not intervening. Uh, but Achilles is sitting out. Okay, okay, so Achilles is sitting by a ship. Right. Sulking. And Zeus does nothing. Right. So on one side, you've got Ajax and Diomedes and Odysseus and Agamemnon and Menelaus. And the other side, you've got basically Hector, Aeneas, and however we care about Paris, <coughs> excuse me. And well, we have Sarpedon as well, right? Who's yeah, the son of Zeus. Who do, you, who do you actually think would win? I mean, now I mean, we're only at book eight, but like, who do you think would win? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Uh, maybe naively, or uh, maybe I, maybe I'm just n- not looking into the depths of it. But it just it seems like so. You have I mean let, let's review some of the main battles, right? So you have Paris versus Menelaus. What happens? I mean, Menelaus is going to slaughter the dude, right? Uh, and then the guys intervene. Uh, then you have 
uh, Ajax and Hector, two great warriors. We, we made that very clear last 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 week, right? Mm-hmm. That they're both very great warriors. Hector is for sure loved by the gods. Uh, at least Ajax is a, a naturally great warrior. I don't know if he's loved by the gods or not, but he at least has favor in a natural sense, being big and huge, have his seven-layer seven dip shield. Um, and it seems like the Ajax absolutely gets the best of him, right? And uh, is winning by all rights. And then, you know, dusk happens and it's time to slow down the, the fighting. Uh, so I, I don't know. Uh, it, it seems like that uh, we have Menelaus who's, who, who, who beat Paris. We have Ajax who kind of beat Hector, their best guy. After Hector, there's, it seems like there's a pretty steep drop off um, yeah, on, on, on that side. So, uh, you know, uh, Hector being the best one uh, gets pretty much beat by one of nine who are willing to to fight him. So I don't know. I mean, to me, it seems like that. um, I mean, that they do they need? Oh, I haven't even brought up Diomedes. Diomedes who just goes on kill sprees and just slaughters you know people by by himself will freaking just go in there by himself as everybody else is retreating to go kill people. Right. Who the the Trojans have already admitted. They, they fear, fear more, more than they it, ever did Achilles. Right. Um, so I didn't. I haven't brought him up yet, but uh, so it seems like that uh, uh, that the Trojans are looking pretty bleak. It seems like that uh, the Argives are are um, pretty strong. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I do. <sighs> I think that that was a um, long like that was long winded <laughs> answer. And if you'd have been like, no. well, first of all, you're wrong. That would have no. That's not how this works, okay. right? We were, we were pursuing truth together. Iron sharpens iron, mm-hmm. right? If you're running a small group concurrently with our podcast, uh, don't chastise your uh, you know fellow point. people, right? Yeah. Um, maybe not true. We we have one fellow in our Sunday great books <laughs> who um, I almost said something and I was like, I know he will go without name. He, he he who shall not be named in our small group, I think goes home and concocts spends the whole month concocting the weirdest opinion he can come up with. Uh, and then shares it in the group. It. It, I appreciate it. It does add some levity. Right. Um, strangely, we have not shared any of his views on this podcast. <laughs> so, nor, nor will we. <laughs> that is a, there are, we do have rules and decorum. Yeah. So, <coughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, again, to answer your question, the short answer is it seems like they don't need Achilles. Yeah. I, I think that the reason I bring this up is I think it's a good hypothetical to kind of test our own presumptions about what's happening. I think that. A lot of times I've noticed, I think I read it this way the first time I read it. Um, maybe we're kind of conditioned by just thinking of like, oh, it's Achilles. Like he's the best warrior. Like he's this. I, I was really conditioned that basically like what Thetis asked Zeus to do is basically a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That like, okay, well, clearly if Achilles goes and sits by the ships, the Trojans are just going to push. They have to have Achilles to win the war, mm-hmm. right? That, I think that's a common read, right? They have to have Achilles to win the war. Um, you know, if anyone saw the, what's our friend call that? The, the, the Brad Pitt documentary, the documentary, yeah, the, documentary yeah. the Brad Pitt documentary mm-hmm. on Troy. That's how they basically structure it, right? right? Like you have to have this guy to win the war. And I'm just, I, I'm not entirely sure that's accurate. I, th- I think that it would seem, I think you laid out lots of the good evidence before us. If we, if we have an intentive reading and we look at these things that really Zeus really has to bolster Troy. He really has to bless the Trojans Mm-hmm. to keep them just from falling, right? I mean, the, the Argives are the superior army even without Achilles, mm-hmm. right? And I do think there's a there's a bright um, line between Achilles 
being the best warlord on the Argive side and him being necessary to win the war. Those are actually two, that's, those are two different uh, points, right? There's a distinction there. So it's just something that, <coughs> excuse me, that occurs to me. I talk about it in the guide um, because I think it kind of, sh- it makes you step back and kind of realize what is it that Zeus actually has to do to make this thing work. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting that, you know, Achilles is going to come in and get all this glory when in reality, right, they probably could have taken Troy without him. Yeah, I didn't even mention like Odysseus at all. Like you know, right, Odysseus I, is also and there. I know he has to make a you know a pretty big presence here pretty soon. Uh, you know, there's a whole book about him. Uh, yeah, he's been kind of quiet for the last couple of books. Right, and so uh, as you were saying that, I was trying to think because uh, I mentioned this is like okay, after Hector in the Trojan side is a pretty steep drop off. Mm-hmm. Okay, so who would be who would be considered number two over there? Because like well, Aeneas. Aeneas, Aeneas that, that's right, yeah. that's right, of course. Aeneas yeah, would Aeneas. be, it's Hector and then Aeneas, Aeneas. and then yeah. it's a pretty, Sarpedon is there. Um, Pandarus is, or uh, P- Pandarus. Pandarus is, is got, uh, um, Mr. Unlucky. As the, uh, <laughs> as the official term of that. Right. Yeah, He's he has the most brutal death, I think, thus far. Mm. Um, it is brutal. Yeah, so I don't know, that was just my, that's my uh, take. It just seems like, at least in the story, right. we have... Uh, that one side has a, a fire like all star team like mm-hmm. they're guys who've made who made all state in in fighting and the other guys are like uh, an eight and two eight and three team. No, I agree. I, it's just you know as we're reading this together, as we're reading it maybe in your small group or you're just listening to the podcast, whatever you're doing, I think it's a good hypothetical to keep in mind. I like it. Yeah, right? I like that question. Like just just what would the R guys be like without Achilles, but without any divine intervention? And like, you know, are we really what we're seeing is is Zeus suppressing the better army mm-hmm. for the sake of just satiating Achilles' pride, mm-hmm. right? Okay. <coughs> let's look at the text. Okay. Uh, let's see. It starts off with a strict decree, as we mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, I, I just love that Athena, the goddess of wisdom, has to make like a caveat. Like, I know. yeah, I mean, it's probably the lawyer in me. Like, yes, we will do that. All I will do right. is give them <laughs> tactics, right? So, like your 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 um, you know attestation has a caveat built in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lawyer in me really actually enjoyed that, right? Um, well played. You know, Athena. I noticed this, and this was something just as we kind of and please, as a first time reader, mm-hmm. um, point things out. I might not always know the answer. I mean, obviously, I'm a student as well of Homer. But also, Athena's she has several uh, epithets of her own. One of them is third born of the gods. Mm-hmm. I noticed that, and and this it's actually somewhat mired in mystery. Uh, it could mean several things. One, um, there's a way to count it in which she's the third female, you know, goddess from Zeus. Mm-hmm. That might be one way to count it. The other one is sometimes it's not uh, it's not interpreted as third born, but triple born. And so uh, there's a thing of like, you know, Zeus got her mom. It depends on what myth you take, but like Zeus got her mom pregnant. Zeus then eats her mother to keep her from becoming pregnant. And then Zeus basically gives birth to Athena through (laughs) his head. And Mm -hmm. she comes out as a fully formed, you know, goddess, Mm -hmm. right? So she's kind of triple born, if that makes sense. So there's different. That's an interesting (coughs) take. Right. So there's different, um, and sometimes Zeus giving birth to a god is a is a theme that we have. He does that, he does that with, uh, we talked about that a few books ago. He does that with um, 
Dionysus, right? Dionysus, he sews up in his thigh mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, is later born from Zeus. So just a side note about some of these titles that they use and, and some of the myths um, that are behind them. So she's just going to offer, you know, tactics, um, the fighting returns. Let's look at 80 and like 81. Mm-hmm. <coughs> this brings up, I think, one of the key, uh, something that we really need to discuss. If you pull anything from from this, I think this is a, I think this is something to pay attention to. So 81 says, uh, let's start at 80. But once the sun stood striding at high noon, then Father Zeus held out his sacred golden scales. In them, he placed two fates of death that lay men low, one for the Trojan horsemen, one for the Argives armed in bronze. And gripping the beam mid-haft, the father raised it high, and down went Achaia's day of doom, Achaia's fate. So, yeah, when I first read this, I was like, what? So, I, I, I would really like to know your opinion as a first-time reader. So, we've kind of gone through this discussion together. We have our small group. We have the podcast. You know, one of the things that we're tracking throughout the Iliad is who who's in charge here? Is right. this the will of Zeus, which is kind of how the Iliad opens. Remember the whole Iliad right. opens talking about the will of Zeus that moves all things towards its end. Um, or, but where does fate fit in? And sometimes fate seems to override things. Now, here we get this picture. Here's Father Zeus seemingly making a decision based off fate. <laughs> Excuse me. Right, so he holds out scales. Right, there's there's actually a distinction between him and this other object, right. and it tells him, yeah. yeah, right, and it just happens to line up with his promise to Thetis. So, just you know, could you give me get some some raw takes on like when you read this, like, yeah, my raw my raw takes were like I, it deflated the power of Zeus in my mind. Mm-hmm. I was just like, ugh, really? Like, so he has to like go to lady fate or you know like like lady fortune to try to figure out like who's going to live who's going to die i thought it was his will like he's the one that's all powerful and everybody's uh, you know worried about him he's the uh, on olympus and everybody has to you know go by what he says and now he's like <laughs> it made it seem like they're all like asking him what to do and like he goes on into this corner like in the room <laughs> and like right. pulls this out and yeah. like you know, it, it, like a trickster. Like I don't know. I I found it to be uh, demoralizing in a like holding Zeus up as a high god mm-hmm. um, was my, my was my first hot take of it. Yeah, which could be like you know could be wrong, but no, I no I I, I think that's no I think that's a certainly a, a reasonable take. I mean, the first time I read it, I was like, oh, finally an answer. Right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Also so here. Like, oh, so here's how this works. So, Zeus has some malleability to this, um, but there really is like a cosmic, nameless fate right. that's driving everything that even the gods are subject to. But don't you also think it's like it gives Zeus an out? Like I was thinking about it. Like okay, yeah, because what he says has to go. He may be able to deviate from it a little bit, but it has to go. And then like at some point, I could see Hera coming up to him and like whining or complaining to him and him be like, listen, I didn't pick it. It was his stupid scales. You right. know, like to me, it just gave him an, ad- did, not, did you not, did you feel that way at all? Well, I think, yeah, I think it depends on how you look at it. I, I, we should probably note that like 
there has been an abundance of ink spilt on like, you know, is this fate? Is this Zeus? You know, how do you reconcile yeah. them? Yeah, because we, we're, so we're reading Fagel's transition uh, translation, but I also know that you. I'll cut this out of the podcast if you don't like this this question, but uh, I know that you've you've listened or you've read uh, Latimer's translation, at least the introduction to it. Mm-hmm. To, to it, does Latimer <coughs> all, like also think that this is fate, or does he, or, or what is his take on this? Yeah, so so Knox Knox gives the introduction. Why would we cut this out of the podcast? Well, in case you didn't, is that just like your is that yeah. a, is that a power I have that if you just oh no, <laughs> I didn't know I had that. No, cut that. I don't Hold like on. that. Yeah, let me look. Yeah, let me have no. the scales of fate. Yeah, your question's dumb. Yeah, um, yeah. So I no Knox. So th- that's a great question. So Knox and Latimer. Uh, so Knox does the introduction for Fagel's translation. Right. Knox and Latimer actually kind of just by chance represent the two different views on this. So Knox talks about like, listen, if you look at the text and the evidence, these things just it, to try and reconcile Zeus's will with fate is incredibly difficult. And it does seem like they're two separate things. And this is what we get into, kind of like what my working definition has been of this and kind of what I've alluded to or not alluded to, but referenced throughout the podcast is that destiny, the fate, seems to be set, but then it's a, it's a little bit flexible and malleable at times, right? The mm-hmm. gods can... can Zeus seems to have some effect on it. Yeah. Um, even the human actions seem to have some effect. So like, there's an overall movement of where we know fate is taking things, but we have some movement based off these things. Probably the the most impactful movement would be Zeus, right? Mm-hmm. So there's certainly that view. Latimer just comes out of the gate and says, um, <clears throat> "I quote this in the in the guide." He says, "Zeus is not subject to fate, and not is italicized, right? Like he mm-hmm. is the, he, I, he is dying on this hill." And his view is, is I think, kind of what you were uh, alluding to, is that his view, if I understand him correctly, is basically that the scales are just this ceremonial way of Zeus expressing his will, and that really fate is simply the alter ego of Zeus, right? There's really no daylight between the two, right? So Zeus might at times seem to be obeying a fate, um, but is, is he really doing that? I, I think why the evidence is hard to do this is because it depends sometimes on how you read Zeus talking about fate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So because there are, we haven't gotten to him yet, but in the back half of the Iliad, there are a few examples of Zeus seemingly, there's one example I can think of where Zeus um, doesn't want something to happen, but then gives it up to fate. Basically, fate has demanded this, right? Mm-hmm. And therefore, I will not intervene. Mm-hmm. And that's like, what do, uh, so that, so this is all just a theater. So on one view, that would all be theater, mm-hmm. right? It's like, oh, we, right. Pff, that's not really true, right? right? It's, it's all theater. Um, you know, we do need to keep in mind that the will of Zeus is unalterable once he's made a decision. Right. But there also seem to be a ton of particulars that he can make decisions on. Right. And so like, you know, willing, for instance, this willing that Zeus, or excuse me, that Troy falls doesn't necessarily will like that you know, Hector dies or Achilles dies or like what happens to Odysseus, right? There's right. a ton of particulars that he would have to understand there. So, <clears throat> and then there's another one too, later in the text, and what's immortal is going to do something. And Zeus um, basically is alarmed and says, no, that person has to, we have to stop that person in case he throws all of fate into chaos because he's trying to do something that's contrary 
to fate. So, you know, I, it's, it's, there's a lot of ink spilt here on how, how do we read this. I think there's evidence uh, for both sides. You know, is fate some, is there a cosmic nameless fate um, that all the gods, including Zeus, are subject to? And then they just, it's a little bit malleable as they play it out. Uh, or is fate simply just an, uh, you know, the alter ego of Zeus? I think yeah. those are kind of the two positions right now. Yeah. I can't think of another uh, position. Uh, I mean, it seems like also it could be, okay, well, when does he actually, uh, when is it his will? Like, when does he just say, like, oh, this isn't a big enough deal where I can just choose and this is what goes? And is there times where this is big enough in history or for whatever reason that I have to go to fate and let it you know, b- mm-hmm. balance the scales? Because it's interesting because one of the things they talk about is the nameless fate. Right. And I think that's really fascinating that they make that distinction from Zeus. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that there's, um, I think Hector talked about this in the last book. What was that? Book seven. Yeah. Cause it comes before eight. Yes. Cause you, uh, guided us through, uh, at the beginning of the podcast. So I, you know, I, I just think that's interesting of just like, okay, is, is there something that he's subject to or not? And I mean, yeah, I think you could have a good opinion on what is the view of the people, What's mm-hmm. the view of the gods? Right. right? Do the gods know this is just an alter ego? So do you think it raises more questions than answers? Well, I, I think that we... I think somewhat like we talked about with Hector, who seems to change his take on fate based off who he's speaking to, right? And that leads us with a difficulty of having to discern what Hector actually thinks about fate at the end of the day, right? So, like, is it his... You know, does he really think... Troy is doomed to die. Does he think he can turn this around? Like, what does he think? Oh, well, he's playing to different people. Right. The same The same question I would ask is, what about the gods? Like, do they just see fate as an alter ego of Zeus? Do they think that there actually is a nameless fate that he's actually subject to? Uh, it's not occurring to me right now. I mean, there's lots of statements. Apollo made one, I think, last text of, say, like, you know, uh, Troy that is, you know, doomed to die or fated to uh, to die. Mm-hmm. You know, when he makes that statement, does he mean the will of Zeus? Does he mean a nameless fate? Or does he, or is there any distinction there? Right. So I think, you know, at book eight, we are not going to solve this problem. I think even after we read the text a hundred times, I don't think we're necessarily going to solve the problem. But I, I will say there's a perennial truth here or a perennial question which is what is the relationship to the divine, right, of the divine to concepts like fate or destiny or, you know, even goodness, right? Can there be something above the gods that they are subject to? Mm-hmm. And this is going to become a perennial question uh, in the West. It's, it's going to be a perennial question that's explicitly taken up in Plato's dialogue of the Euthyphro. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so this is starting us, I think. So <clears throat> if you don't find these answers satisfactory, I think you should keep in mind that Homer is starting the dialogue for us. Right. right. He, he is he's cracking this open and he's making us start to ask hard questions about the role of the gods, the will of Zeus. What is the role of fate? What is the actions of man? I mean, these questions getting into providence. What is our free will? are questions clearly that we're still debating today, I mean, obviously within the truth of Jesus Christ. Right. So this is, uh, I would say, the beginning of the conversation, and that's how we should look at it. Yeah. 
That was a very lawyer-esque answer, but I agree. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. <clears throat> okay, so we get the scales. Uh, we talked about Nestor. Poor Nestor is uh, by himself because Paris shoots his horse. Yeah, dadgummit. Like, I just, what? He is so on brand. It is hard for me to understand. Hard. It's just, I, and also, we, it's, we not, the, it's not the last time he will do that, by the way. He, just pay attention to who Paris shoots, and it's actually, I, I swear, uh, Homer is trying to be comedic as he portrays this, but. Yeah. What were you going to say? Nothing charitable, so we can, we can move on. <laughs> You're talking about people in our group again? Yeah, you, you need to set a good example for everyone. You do not have a great books group and then go talk to your other friends about, about someone who makes dumb comments in the great books that's, group. That's why we actually I don't have anyone like that. We have people who make humorous, creative comments. Yeah. So as we're he's the talking about me. As we're all on this journey together. Yeah. So um we should note that Odysseus uh, actually doesn't go to help Nestor, right? Uh, he's actually critiqued by Di- Diomedes, like, where are you running, right, you cool tactician, mm-hmm. right? He's kind of uh, mocked by him. Odysseus doesn't even hear him and just keeps running back. So uh, Nestor, um, sa- or excuse me, Diomedes saves Nestor. Nestor. Diomedes gets the great idea of, let's go kill Hector, like, all by ourselves, right? right. Like, the entire Trojan line is there. Let's go kill Hector. Yeah, and I've been like over the course of uh, however many weeks we've been doing this, like b- building up kind of uh, Diomedes here, like thinking like he's 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 like Achilles, but more prudent. Uh, you know. Do you no. find it odd that Diomedes? I mean, what has happened? Like Diomedes can't face Hector in a duel, one-on-one duel in front of everybody. Right, like he he waits for Nestor to chastise him, and now. He, I guess uh, maybe Nestor's chastisement is still ringing in his ears, and now he's like, oh, now's my chance to take down Hector. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I mean, there's maybe been... he has some guilt for not getting up uh, in book eight, and Ajax gets the opportunity. Yeah. Or book seven, sorry. I said eight. So, uh, so, we, so he's going to charge them again, just as a side note, at 150, we get another metaphor, uh, actually a simile of Troy being like sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think very much is to the slaughter. So then Zeus lets all these, you know, first he lets an actual bolt of lightning go right at Diomedes' chariot right. and just blows, you know, sulfur and everything else into the air, very clearly trying to communicate to Diomedes, this is a dumb idea. Nestor I wish then... I was just a sign that would tell right. me this is not a good idea. Nestor uh, very prudently uh, then kind of points out, hey... We almost got struck by a lightning bolt. Like, why don't you turn back around? And, um, you know, Diomedes is actually concerned that if he turns around, like Hector will make fun of him. He'll actually vaunt this over him. Like, oh, look, when we turned around this, you know, Nestor points out that this is dumb. Hector then yells at Diomedes, right? This is so funny. They're always like talking to each other. They, you know, Hector taunts him, yells at Diomedes. Diomedes, we get this really a temptation scene, right? The Mm -hmm. temptation of Diomedes, uh, line 190. Diomedes was torn in two ways, right? Half a mind is to turn around, which is more prudent, and the other one to go face to face. What's interesting is every time he's tempted, which is three times, uh, Zeus lets loose his thunder for Diomedes to know this. One thing that, um, so eventually he, you know, obviously he turns around and runs. What really strikes me about this passage, there's a few things. One, is uh, 
the somewhat uh, charming juxtaposition of the young brazen Diomedes receiving counsel from Nestor, boy your boy Nestor. Nestor, yeah. Sorry, the the old soldier Nestor, right? Okay. I think there's a clear juxtaposition here that they're that's, that's being offered. I just want to let you know, I just had an idea <laughs> that we're gonna do. I want to make a T-shirt that says "Old Boy Nestor." Very good. I I will defer to you and your marketing skills for that one. That would be awesome. Um, so I like I liked it, right? This 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 Diomedes and Nestor, like this dialogue yeah. going back and forth. The other thing that struck me here was. Um, I'm going to use the word mercy, which why I use it with a giant caveat when talking about the Hellenic gods. Mm-hmm. But Zeus does not strike me as someone who's long-suffering. Right. right? Uh, just <laughs> it's very clear. Just, He's you know, subtle things I've picked up on. Um, astute. Yeah, astute very, very astute observations. It just, it just kind of shocked me how much he hmm. tolerates Diomedes' pride here. Yeah. Right? I mean, clearly, most of the time, you do half a thing that, yeah. that, that you you're prideful. the wrong way and right. you are getting wiped off the face of this earth. Yeah, or you get to roll a boulder up Hades all your life, or right. you get to do whatever it is, right? Mm. Um, you get turned into something and eaten by people. I mean, they just don't take things like this well. Right, yeah, no, that's a good point. And it's just interesting that, like, he gets a lightning bolt and three, th- you know, three like, bolts, like, whatever, peals of thunder. Right. Um, it just It is notable. I don't yeah. know if I call it mercy... Now, the other way to look at this <coughs> is on whom is Zeus having mercy? Okay. Yeah, that's a good... Right? Yeah. And when you first read it, I think you think he's having mercy on Diomedes. Right. Right. That saying, was my initial thought. And then saying Diomedes, that, like, oh, well, no, maybe not. hey, turn around, this is dumb. Nestor says turn around, whatever. However, we just pointed out, as you astutely did at the beginning, that... I think Zeus has to keep interfering to keep Hector safe because if Hector goes down, his whole plot with Thetis is going to suffer. Right. And so there's a part of me that wants to say here um, that the person he's actually having mercy on is Hector. Hector. Yeah. So Diomedes doesn't engage Diomedes him. could go and just go on a kill spree again and just... Correct. So I just... It's an interesting read. Yeah, Something I like think that. About, I right? like that. Idea. I mean, <clears throat> as soon as you said, as soon as you said that, obviously, my first thought was, "Oh, what a what a mercy or a grace or whatever you want to say to Diomedes." And then you said, uh, "But another way to read it." And as soon as you said that, I was like, "Oh, yeah, of course. Like this is actually probably a, a grace to to Hector uh, and and the Trojans because Diomedes clearly can do wreck, you know, wreck havoc. Correct. Two v one, no problem. He can he can still do it." Uh, he, he can kill multiple people multiple times. No big deal. So just something to think about like about that. who who is actually being uh, spared here. Mm-hmm. Two ten, we get this really interesting narrative about Hector's horses. Um, Andromache takes care of them. They get honey-hearted wheat, even mixed with wine, right? Um, and he wants to charge after Nestor, who again has a shield, who apparently was made by Hephaestus. And so, again, we have this looting, right? Hera, uh, who is absolutely raging in Olympus, watching her archives get pushed back, tries to tempt Poseidon into doing something. He wisely says, no, I am not doing Hard this. Hard pass. Right, I'm not doing this. Then she inspires Agamemnon, right? And Agamemnon prays 
to Father Zeus, uh, weeping, crying, etc. Uh, you know, basically let the men escape with their lives, if nothing else. Line 280, the father was filled with pity, seeing Atreides, sorry, Atreides weep. Yeah, what did you what did you see? What did you think of this? Like, what did you think of Agamemnon? Like, uh, I I don't know. When I when I read this, I was, I was a little bit confused because here's a prideful man, obviously, um, and he's going over to pray for pray to Zeus, you know, for help, and he hasn't even like summoned any of his warriors, like. Am, yeah. I, am I reading this wrong? Like, okay, I, I get it. Well, that, they're in full retreat right now. I, right? I understand that they're in full retreat. They're all moving backwards. Right. But uh, that doesn't mean you can't say like you know rally the troops. Like have Nestor say a couple things and get them all riled up again. And like uh, like it seemed like uh, he pulled the desperation card really quick. Yeah, that could be true. I mean, is there any? I guess one way to look at it would be: Is there anything that Agamemnon? Does that he couldn't have done without without you know praying to Zeus? Zeus. Yeah, like, <clears throat> why are you cashing in chips right now? Right, probably. You know, one critique might be whether or not um, if Zeus is backing the Trojans in their push. You know, whether that would have worked. What caught my attention was two things. One is he asks, if I read this correctly, uh, he asks for the men to escape with their lives, if nothing else. Right, don't let us all die in droves. But then what Zeus does is he rouses their war lust to actually have them turn and fight again, right? So he actually so, does a little bit more than what... Even though I would say the Trojans still keep the overarching movement, Yeah, they right? keep the momentum. But, right. But again, so what does Zeus do but play the role of Nestor like, that could be for true. a few minutes? And then they all get riled up again and and, and kind of turn around. I don't know. The fir- My first read on that was... Uh, Agamemnon was cashing in chips that didn't need to be cashed in, calling in favors that didn't need to be called. Uh, that was just my thought. The, yeah, uh, I have no disagreements there. The other thing Come I on, noted. Push back on me. Tell me I'm tell me I'm wrong. The other. Well, I mean, I think you're you're making a a, a judgment on the insight of the of the character, right? So, <clears throat> unless we have some kind of apparatus clear well at least clear something clear to the contrary yeah. um you know I, I think that's uh certainly a read and a question that we can uh we can have and ask the the th- other thing that occurred to me was our kind of ongoing theme that uh fate is set but malleable right so here zeus has decreed that the trojans sh- should be pushing back um and push the argives up to their ships mm-hmm. they start to do that agamemnon cries out zeus has pity on him and then he kind of allows them to push back, overarching. The Trojans are still going to push them up against their ships. But you're kind of seeing, like, when we talk about fate is fixed but flexible, mm-hmm. this is, I think, a good example of this, right, um, of how this works. So the the Achaeans start to push back to a certain degree. Yeah, because you have Diomedes, you have Agamemnon, you have Middle East, and then... Ajax, great, both great and little Ajax, they're all coming. They're all coming out of you know uh, slumber, whatever, and uh, fighting again. This one guy, let's point him out. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, between three hundred and three ten, um, Teuser uh, or Teuser, right? T e u s e r. T e u c e r. I'm sorry. Yeah. C e r. I said that. Um, so Teuser, or I don't think that's a diphthong. So. Um, Tiuser, Tiuser. 
Anyway, I, I just want to point him out. He's because we've we've seen his myth before, but now he's kind of coming into the narrative. He is, if you remember, Ajax's father was part of Heracles slash Hercules army that sacked Troy in the prior generation. And um, Ajax's father took the Trojan princess that was, okay. remember, that was going to be eaten by the sea beast that Hercules saves. Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. I remember this. Um, the child of Ajax's father in the Trojan princess is Teucer. Okay. So this is, so he's actually um, part of the, I mean, he has Trojan royal blood in him uh, and he's half brother of Ajax and he's fighting for the Argives. So that's where, so just kind of taking in that previous generation that attacked Troy, mm -hmm. this is uh, now their children are actually, you know, fighting in the midst. So just kind of like where he came from. And he's firing, if I remember right, he's firing arrows behind. It's kind of this, uh, um, I don't know what I want to call it, cute uh, scheme between the two brothers where giant Ajax has his giant shield he holds in front and two sort of darts back mm -hmm. and forth behind it, like shooting arrows. Right. Um, yeah, so just an interesting thing there. So um, we're, we're getting, you know, obviously, a lot of things of the war and the battles back and forth. Um, about 355, I just want to point out that Apollo uh, skews a shaft that was meant for Hector, like it was going to strike Hector, and Apollo comes in and skews it. Mm -hmm. Just kind of made a note about whether or not that actually violates Zeus's strict decree that he was not yeah. supposed to do, yeah. remember? What's up with that? Right, so just trying to figure out the, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out exactly where the boundaries are on this thing that Zeus has laid down. We I mean, at least Athena says, like, I'm just going to, like, give him tactics. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like, not physically going <clears> to <throat> change things up. So let's see here. 381, we get, uh, I mean, so the promise of Thetis is really coming um, to maturity here. So the Olympian father fired up the Trojans, ramming the Argives back against their own deep trench. Mm -hmm. Remember, they they created these kind of ramparts and trenches back by their ships. And Hector, uh, down after a little bit before 400, he has eyes, you know, glaring like Ares, uh, the god of war. Notice then that when Hector is described, uh, so for instance, a little bit before 410, he's, uh, you know, men are hacked to pieces this maniac Hector, he takes on a lot of the jargon that is used to describe Ares, mm -hmm. right? As we kind of had that conversation already about the distinction between Athena and Ares when it comes to, to war, the cool tactics versus kind of the bloodlust uh, mania. So Athena is just about to lose it. She's about to. Right, she's about she's to lose it. She's about to blow a gasket here. Um, this it really captured my imagination, um, the relationship between Zeus and Athena, this kind of father-daughter relationship, which I clearly am going to have a giant asterisk on, that there's deep disorders here amongst the Olympian gods, and I, I don't find this to be um, a great exemplar of a lot of things. But I would point out that as far as tenderness goes amongst the Olympian gods, there's a certain tenderness between Athena and Zeus that I, I don't see replicated anywhere. Right, so like on 490, or no, excuse me, a little after 420, Athena says, but Zeus hates me now. He fulfills the plans of Thetis, who cupped his chin in her hands and kissed his knees, begging Zeus to exalt Achilles, scourge of cities. But the day will come 
when father, well, I know, calls me his darling gray-eyed girl again. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's just like this this certain uh, sensitivities there that I just don't... Well, are certainly not shared between Zeus and Hera. So... <laughs> Right, because Hera hears this, and of course, like she's going to have all these machinations against him. So she, <coughs> excuse me, she tempts Athena. And Athena, interesting, the goddess of wisdom, uh, gives into it. So she starts. Obviously, the temptation being, we have to intervene despite Zeus's decree. Right. So she dons the battle shirt of the Lord of Lightning. She gets her spear. She gets all dressed again. Hera's getting ready too. Zeus sees them. Right, I mean, he from his throne he sees all. He sends Iris, and again he kind of has this somewhat intimate statement, right? Like four sixty-five or so. Uh, he's like, basically, go tell them that they can't do this. Like, I'm gonna blow their chariot horses out from underneath them or whatever. He says, so that gray-eyed girl of mine may learn what it means to fight against her father. Mm-hmm. But with Hera, though, I'm not so outraged, so irate. It's always her way to thwart my will, whatever I command. So I was like, yeah, by the way, my wife, I expect this of her. She's always going to be scheming against me. Right. But I don't expect this of my gray-eyed girl. Mm-hmm. I don't. And to be quite frank, the way I read this, happy to have a different opinion, I don't think Athena is being... Well, she might be being imprudent. I don't think Athena is being taken advantage of. I don't think this is a lack of like her wisdom or an ability of like a an inability to see that she's being manipulated by Hera. I don't read it like that. I read it insofar as I think she's abusing her relationship with her father. I think she knows that she can push the boundaries with him mm-hmm. more than anyone else can, right? Yeah, Aries tried to do this. He'd get blasted out of this into the deep abyss, Tartarus hole or whatever he'd go to, right? Right. I think I think Athena, maybe I'm reading too much into the relationship, but I reading it in, I think, maybe a more robust way, I think Athena knows particularly given Ares' tirade against her when we saw her origin story, mm-hmm. right? That Zeus always does what she asks. He, she can't do any wrong. Right. I think she's abusing her relationship with her father here. I don't think she's been tricked by Hera. That uh, would be my... That was my read. Okay. That was, yeah, is that she was even... Man, I, I guess... I, I was just about to say this, and then I realized I've said this several times on this podcast thus far, is that he, she was trying to gain sympathy. It's like, it just seems like that there's a lot of characters that I, I, I don't trust. <laughs> and so I, I think that they're not uh, necessarily being honest with, with their uh, dial- with, with, with their conversations. I think, uh, you know, obviously we talked about that with Helen earlier. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really po- sure that she was being authentic. Um, and when I read this, I thought, oh, she's, she knows she can uh, push the buttons. Right. And she knows which buttons to push, and so every once in a while she will. Yeah, and I think even Iris, the messenger god, right, has like a gloss on this, um, you know, which Figgles translates as, um, it's a little hard to read because she chastises uh, Athena. She says, so, this is after 480, says, so you, his great-eyed girl, may learn what it means to fight against your father. But with Hera, though, he's not so outraged, so irate. It's always your way to thwart his will. But then she gives a commentary. She says, You insolent, brazen bitch. You really dare to shake that monstrous spear in father's face. And here she doesn't use the proper noun, right? But she has to be talking about Athena. And I'm happy to be corrected here. But Hera is not depicted anywhere with a spear. 
But if you go back to when Athena got dressed, right, it says, and she seized her spear, weighted heavy and massive shaft, right? So I read this as, this is Iris's commentary on really knowing that Athena is the favored one. Mm. And like, look, look how you are acting, right? I mean, we don't have to repeat the line over again, but right, like, look how you are acting, right? Are you really going to do this? And basically, you know, Hera immediately turns, says enough, right? We're not going to do this. Um, wow, I did not read it that way. That's in, that, I, I like that. Okay, I like well, how did how did you read it? Because I pondered over this a lot on just like when you read that. Because first I had to figure out it, is she, is Iris actually talking to Athena? Because see, she goes right. Athena and then Hera, and, and then, then there's no proper noun there. She just says right. you, but the one holding the spear is Athena, and the, and so I yeah. think Hera is f- in a certain way doing things worse, but it's expected of her. But Athena is um, taking advantage of the relationship of the one who is favored by Zeus, which would be something that all the gods see, right? How did, I mean, did you have a, a different read? Well, yeah, I mean, after you sit there and, and explain it, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think I disagree with you. But when I first read it, I envisioned it as like, so she's talking to Athena, and then like she's still talking to Athena when she meant, like she's looking at Athena talking to her when she's talking about Hera. Mm-hmm. And then, like, she looks over at Hera and addresses her as you, you, you know, and goes on with it, with that statement. So, like, to me, I thought, like, she was talking to Athena, uh, like, uh, so you, gray-eyed girl, uh, may may learn what it means to fight against your father. But Hera, so she, I, to me, she's still addressing Athena, but Hera over here, uh, <laughs> she's doing all this, you know, she's so irate. And then I envisioned it turning to Hera and saying, and addressing mm-hmm. her that way, but... I, I think is, the spear. The spear is what gives. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. I just didn't. I didn't catch that. I think the spear is what does that. Yeah. So their hearts are dashed because their archives are being crushed. Um, again, all turning this aside, Zeus is not going to win Father of the Year award for about a million different reasons. But then they obey him, and then he decides. Um, well, he says, "But the father knew their feelings deep within his heart." And he mocked them mocked harshly, them. right? So he goes up there and, and mocks them. It's interesting that Athena holds her peace and says nothing, right? I think she knows that she's kind of overstepped. Mm-hmm. Hera steps out, who tried to tempt... Hera didn't mind saying anything. No, but it's interesting, though, Hera's response, after she tried, she tried to tempt Poseidon and then did tempt um, successfully to a certain degree Athena... She then says, like, listen, who are you? We can't stand against you, et cetera. We just pity the Argives. We're just going to simply offer them tactics. So she actually ends up repeating Athena's, Athena's own thing at the beginning. Um, you know, so she, she repeats Athena's caveat. Then we get into something that um, we very much need to note, but we don't quite understand it all right now. <clears throat> and this is that Zeus decides to a certain degree to pull back the veil. He decides to show them uh, what his will is going to do, right? And so at the bottom, uh, let's see, so after 540, right, Zeus has this little speech. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he says, Tomorrow at dawn's your chance, my ox-eyed queen. Look down then if you have a taste for it, Hera, and you will see the towering son of Kronos killing still more hordes, whole armies of Argive soldiers. I mean, he's really kind of twisting the knife here. 
This powerful Hector will never quit fighting, not till swift Achilles rises beside the ships. That day they battle against the high sterns, penned in the fatal straits. This we already know. Here's what we don't know. In grappling for the body of Patroclus, so runs the doom of Zeus. So Adam, who mm. is Patroclus? Yeah, so Patroclus is one well, we've only been we've barely been introduced to him, right? Like I think book one uh, yep. is that is that right? Where, where Patroclus was just briefly introduced, mm-hmm. um, and so there's I guess <laughs> there's some debate on 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 the relationship between uh, Patroclus and Achilles, but um, Patroclus is part of. Well, I mean, obviously, if you look, watch the documentary, <laughs> you know exactly who Patroclus is, right? He ha- he has golden lock hair, he has right. a chiseled body, uh, chiseled jaw, like, and plays plays Achilles really well. Yeah, so Patroclus is um, Achilles' friend, right? He's his, I love how you just like completely. Yeah, I'm gonna bypass that. I'm just gonna <laughs> bypass you. <laughs> Um, I, just so everyone is aware, when Adam refers to the documentary on Troy, he means the movie with Brad Pitt, um, which I, I would not recommend as you're trying to read the Iliad. So <clears throat> Patroclus actually is introduced to us at uh, book one, mm-hmm. line 360, simply as he is the friend of Achilles. Mm-hmm. So... Now we're kind of, it's interesting. The, the will of Zeus now is giving us an insight into the future, grappling for the body of Patroclus. So somehow uh, how the doom of Zeus is going to be tied to the death mm-hmm. of the friend of Achilles, uh, who currently right now is sitting at the ships with Achilles, right? He's not part of the Argive army. He's sitting, um, he's sitting by the ships with his friend. Somehow he's going to die, and then somehow his body will be central to the doom of Zeus. And this is one of the reasons why, as we've kind of moved through the text together, I've been flagging, pay attention to how they treat the bodies. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to the burial rites. Pay attention to, if you remember, Aeneas, right, stood over his friend's body like a lion, right, Mm -hmm. defending him. Um, This is going to become central uh, to the, quote, doom of Zeus. So we kind of get this, and now we're, we're, we're going to be very much on edge and waiting for Patroclus to re-enter the narrative mm-hmm. uh, to see you know what happens to him. So uh, we continue. Uh, the book ends really with Troy being put on full alert. Uh, Troy's not used to this. Troy's not used to their army not being right outside their walls, right? Now the Trojan army is pushing the Argives up against their ships. So Troy ends up being put on high alert, right? Uh, light, you know, have all these men in the towers, do these things, have the women make sure to, you know, light all the torches, right? They're watching for spies or a sneak attack or something while the army is away. Mm-hmm. Um, is this not a situation that Troy is used to being in? Yeah. And then basically it ends with uh, the Trojans, who are very, um, you know, enthusiastic right now, and the Argives, who are hoping for mercy, and all the gods who can't intervene anymore because of the strict decree of Zeus. Intervene-ish. Ish, right? Waiting for dawn to mount her glowing throne. Yeah. And see what Zeus does tomorrow. Yeah. 
you know, we, there's quite a few things that we, we discussed in this chapter, but there was, there's a lot more that we actually could unpack. I really uh, appreciated your uh, guide for this, this chapter. Um, it, it unpacks even more than what we discussed, especially with Athena and Zeus and um, some other things that we can observe in, in, in Book 8. Uh, and so I highly recommend if you are reading this along with us, it'd be really cool to hear from people who are actually like opening up the book of it daily and listening to the podcast and right. going through with us and tracking with us. Uh, so if that's you, you know, reach out to us on social media or, and, and let us know. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, uh, we can always uh, poise. It. I'd like to even like take some of those questions that we may have and, uh, and ask our, our group. Right, you know, and, be see, good. And, and see what what you know what our group would say. So yeah, reach to it, reach out on uh, Twitter. Yeah, there you go. We can do that, and uh, uh, and then also you obviously go go to our website, you know, thegreatbookspodcast dot com, and you can uh, find the uh, the guide that you that you put together. All right, well, I appreciate it. Adam. Awesome, it's been a lot of fun. Check us out next week as we go into book nine because it goes seven, eight, nine. Very good. And we'll, we'll see you guys next week. See you. Thank you.